0: 19 pandemic continues into its second year, public health experts are increasingly concerned that the response to this global crisis may be accelerating another one. The development and persistence of the antibiotic resistant bacteria known as superbugs.
1: Why? All antibiotic use hastens the emergence of resistance and although antibiotics aren't used to treat COVID-19, which is a viral illness, they're often prescribed to COVID-19 patients who are at risk for bacterial infection.
2: That was Rachel Zetz and David Hyun, both of whom work on the Pew Charitable Trust's Antibiotic Resistance Project, reading from their recent first opinion titled, Many Hospitalized COVID-19 Patients Are Given Antibiotics. That's a problem. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. In the wake of the greatest public health crisis in recent memory, the role of the pharma and biopharma industry in the lives of global populations has taken on growing importance as it helps fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Cytiva's Global Biopharma Resilience Index takes a holistic look at the industry across five key pillars at a time when its health is vital. Dive into the highlights and key findings at Cytiva.com resilience. That's cytiv dot backslash resilience. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, David and Rachel.
0: Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah,
2: thank you for having us. Before we get rolling... It would be great if you can define a few terms so we're all talking the same language for listeners. I hear the terms antibiotic resistance and antimicrobial resistance. What's the difference?
1: The antibacterial resistance is a, f- a specific type of antimicrobial resistance. So antimicrobial resistance is, is a broader term um, that includes therapeutics for, um, to treat fungal infections, bacterial infections, and, and sometimes virus inf- viral infections. Um, a lot of the focus on antimicrobial resistance uh, has been on uh, resistance around bacteria, so that's when and that's where we talk about antibiotic resistance because antibiotics are specifically designed to treat uh, bacterial infections.
2: So antimicrobial resistance is the whole magella and antibiotics, antifungals, antivirals, antiparasitics, and the like—they're all type of antimicrobials. Yes, that's correct. Yep. So Rachel, are these? antibiotic-resistant bacteria, are these the superbugs we sometimes hear about?
0: Yeah, so often, um, uh, particularly, Particularly those bacteria that have evolved resistance to to most of the, the treatments that we currently have available are, are referred to as as superbugs. And um, really trying to ensure, minimize the development of resistance so that we have time to develop new therapies to ensure that patients really continue to have access to um, effective therapies. You know we we've grown used to expecting antibiotics to to work when we when we need them. And and our work is really focused on ensuring that um, the policies are in place to ensure antibiotics are used appropriately and that we have an adequate um, pipeline of of new antibiotics to address resistance as it develops um, in in the future.
2: So help me understand how this problem occurs. Say my doctor recommends that I take a course of azithromycin or some other antibiotic for a clearly bacterial infection, and I dutifully follow her instructions. Can that contribute to the problem? It can.
1: Um, All all antibiotic use contributes to antibiotic resistance, um, especially for for these bacterial infections we're talking about. And it's just the natural way bacteria evolves. The the, the bacteria, just like all living organisms, need to find a way to survive. And so the more, anytime it's exposed to antibiotic, the, the bacteria gains an opportunity to learn how to evade Um, the actions and the effects of the antibiotics. So regardless of whether an antibiotic was truly needed or not, um, or what's truly appropriately used, um, all those antibiotics will have an effect. The goal here when we talk about how to um, minimize antibiotic resistance through uh, optimization of antibiotic use is to really reduce the unnecessary use of antibiotics and while maintaining and making sure that antibiotics are still available and effective
2: for those patients who truly do have a bacterial infections and need those treatments. In 2016, a scary report from the United Kingdom's Review on Antimicrobial Resistance estimated that the death toll from drug-resistant infections could reach 10 million a year by 2050, roughly the annual toll taken by cancer. Not long after that, I read an op-ed in the Boston Globe in which MIT's Thomas Levinson wrote, I'm quoting here, a bad cut, a scraped knee, an ankle broken on a slide into second base. For three quarters of a century, these have been painful, annoying, a hassle, and nothing more. That could change. Is that fear-mongering or is that the real deal?
0: The UK report that that you highlight sort of looks at the the future of of antimicrobial resistance and and where we could potentially be heading in the event that we don't sort of implement um, steps now to to address the emergence of resistance. Um, But it's important to recognize that we know that antibiotic-resistant bacteria are are already here. Um, The CDC put out a report in 2019 that found that within the U.S. around 3 million um, Americans acquire drug-resistant infections each year and are around 35,000 of those patients die as a, a direct result of those infections. And so we're already seeing the impact of resistance in patients and, and the need to really take steps forward COVID-19 has really highlighted the the need to ensure that we are adequately prepared for public health threats um and and in the case of antibiotic resistance we know it's coming and we we are aware of of steps that can be taken to to address it um sort of proactively and to prepare um for for the next strain of resistance that that may emerge in the future.
2: What keeps you up at night about this? Yeah, um you know, I
1: have, I have two children. Even though I took care of a lot of kids as a, as a pediatric infectious disease doctor, I think it became a lot more real in some sense when I um, had my own children. And as many of us infectious doctors do, we kind of we get a little paranoid whenever our child spikes a fever and, um, and we start thinking about the worst case scenarios. But we always had confidence in the efficacy of our antibiotics. Um, whether that was a really bad sinus infection or, a you know, a really horrible case of ear infection, these, these are pretty common infections that we deal with in our kids all the time. And, um, having that confidence is what, you know, made me in the past say, I'm not going to, I'm not too worried as paranoid as I am. We have, we have ways to treat our, our kids to and get them through this infection. Um, what I do worry about is that when, if. That day comes when we no longer can have that level of confidence and assurance that the antibiotics we do have available is going to be able to treat some of the simplest infections that I, you know, I as, I as a doctor, even I as a doctor took for granted as something that's curable.
2: Would you ever turn down an antibiotic for prescribed for one of your kids? Um, if
1: it's... Prescribed inappropriately, <laughs> from, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, I, I think Pat, that you raise a good point too. But uh, is that antibiotic stewardship is not about just about taking away antibiotics. We we it's all it's also about recognizing that there are true scenarios and, and types of infections where antibiotics are absolutely necessary. But I would say, you know, just from my personal experience talking about ear infections, I had. Had you know been on the other side of the you know doctor's office um, visit where I'm in sitting in the patient's chair with my child and and they're recommending antibiotic treatment for a ear infection and I've had situations where I say okay antibiotics are needed in this situation but the type of antibiotic you're prescribing maybe a little bit too over the top or you know may, may, maybe we can it maybe to what we call broad spectrum and so so those situations have occurred in
2: my own personal experience. So in a nutshell, can either of you describe what an antibiotic stewardship program is?
0: An antibiotic stewardship program is is essentially a collection of different types of activities, but all with the goal of um, ensuring that antibiotics are only prescribed when needed, so for bacterial infections, um, and that when antibiotics are prescribed, they are prescribed appropriately. So that that includes, you know, prescribing an, the the appropriate first-line antibiotic, so it's not overly broad spectrum. It really targets the infection and the pathogen that you're trying to treat. It includes, you know, ensuring that. Um, the antibiotic is prescribed at the appropriate duration and, and dose as well. And so it's really looking at the, the patient um, specifically and ensuring that they receive the most appropriate treatment possible.
1: And I think that's the key thing about antibiotic stewardship is that we're, it's, it's about trying to provide that support to the providers who are making these antibiotic decisions on a daily basis to make sure that they have the most up-to-date information that they are armed with the tools needed to have a good conversation with their patients about when antibiotics are truly needed or not. And um, you know, that ties back to the whole concept and the mission of antibiotic stewardship and why it's so important to try to get these programs and activities um, embedded in, in practice wherever antibiotics are used.
2: Are these programs common or are they something that need to be ramped up across the country?
0: We've seen, it, particularly in hospitals, um, uh, an expansion of antibiotic stewardship programs over the past five or so years, and, and that is great progress. You know, I think moving forward within the hospital setting, it's going to be important to ensure that, you know, that that expansion continues and that all hospitals have stewardship programs in place, but also that these programs are robust, well-resourced um, uh, moving forward and, and, and really sort of... Um, Ensuring that that these programs um, are are able to have the impact that they need.
2: Rachel, how about you? What's your antimicrobial resistant nightmare or insomniac?
0: Yeah, I, I think I would just add. I think the the thing that concerns me is that um, you know. This is not necessarily an issue that is on everyone's radar. As we say, you know, it's here, but unless you are maybe more vulnerable to infections, um, it may not be something that, that you've seen or paid attention to. Um, I think I've seen this described as a slow moving tsunami. That's what really drives me is that, you know, we know it's coming. We, we know how, how to start addressing it. And it's just really critical that we get stakeholders and, and, and the general population on board with the need to address this threat
2: we don't really hear a lot about antimicrobial resistant superbugs it it feels like the slow invasion of killer hornets or fire ants that you see in the paper every now and then and don't think about it it's bad but it feels distant from sort of our current reality david what does a what does a world teeming with superbugs look like
1: yeah no it's uh um it, I agree. It, it it is it is it can sound a pretty of, of a distant problem, but it's very as Rachel was saying, it's it's very much here. Um, I I I'm a pediatric infectious disease physician and, and have seen many cases, and this is even just ten years ago, many cases of infections where we just didn't have any antibiotics available to treat the infections with, and this was even more of a issue and more commonly seen in patients who were more vulnerable, such as those who were receiving chemotherapy, um, those who had immune systems that just were ravaged because of other underlying disease issues, diseases. And um, it's a good example of how this affects people right now is that antibiotic resistance is here and it is threatening to undermine not just our ability to treat these infections themselves, but also... Um, threatens the ability to provide other types of treatment and therapies like cancer or even simple surgeries um, could become a dangerous procedure. And um, what we're trying to prevent here is that this is to prevent something like this becoming widespread.
2: How is somebody with an antibiotic resistant infection treated if it's antibiotic resistant?
1: Yeah, so the worst case scenario, which does still happen, um, is that you actually have no options. In more cases, um, a lot of times, uh, doctors and providers will have to reach for antibiotics that are not well proven. And sometimes these are antibiotics that um, may be off-label off for the type of infection that they're using, or there hasn't been sufficient um, studies done in on how best to use those antibiotics and how to dose them. Um, but you start have you're starting to have to reach into you know, reach into this cabinet of you know experimental or less proven antibiotics because because providers are desperate
2: so these clouds were already gathering when covid nineteen arrived and pretty much completely blacked out the sun. How has the pandemic? added a new dimension to micro, antimicrobial resistance?
1: A lot of the resources had to be taken away from programs such as the Antibiotic Stewardship Program. And that has led to concerns that antibiotic use in itself in the hospitals could be going back up again, For these, especially for these facilities where they had to divert um, personal, personnel time um, away from stewardship programs. On the infection control side of things, the same thing can happen too because we had there was such a big shortage on personal protective equipment, and um, and I think this was crystallized by an example that the CDC published in December of an outbreak of a very resistant bacteria in a, in a hospital in a single hospital, and um, when CDC went and investigated along with the help of the hospital to look at the root causes of it. uh, They concluded that the the strain on resources uh, during the pandemic, as a result of the pandemic response, most likely took away a lot of the um, needed the resources that were needed for stewardship programs and infection control programs, and therefore that uh, partly contributed to this outbreak of really resistant bacteria um, in this in this facility.
2: Rachel, can you describe what? What you and David wrote about in the first opinion about hospitals kind of almost giving, it sounded like giving almost everybody a course of antibiotics, whether they had a bacterial infection or not.
0: So we looked at um, data, a a large number of of admissions, around 6,000 admissions from an electronic health record. Um, database um, and found that over half of patients um, admitted during the first six months of the pandemic um, were receiving an antibiotic during their stay. And that's much higher than the occurrence of bacterial infections that we saw in the same population. So it does indicate that um, there is o- there was likely overprescribing occurring um, uh, in, in the early months of the pandemic. And it's certainly something that needs to continue to be monitored uh, moving forward and, and understand how that sort of shift may have shifted. Shifted over time, where are we now and, and, and what impact is this going to have in, in the long run?
2: So that impulse to give antibiotics sort of just in case, is that like going to your doctor with an upper respiratory infection, probably caused by a virus, and coming away with a pack or some other antibiotic?
0: So I I would note that you know in in particularly in this population that we looked at which were hospitalized COVID-19 patients it was early days of the pandemic where physicians were operating with really limited information and trying to give the their patients the best treatment possible and so what we saw in our study was most patients were really who did receive antibiotics received them within the first 48 hours and that's before a physician might have um results from a diagnostic test that would have shown a bacterial infections. And so what's driving this is is likely um, impaired prescribing where a physician looks at their patients, um, evaluates them and the, the risk level that they might have and the potential for a bacterial infection and may prescribe antibiotics um, uh, to ensure that if the patient did need it, they received antibiotics in a timely manner, which is really important. And so I think it's important to recognize that this prescribing in this particular scenario, um, is not, I would say, entirely unexpected. You know, um, early days to have a, a slight um, uh, increase uh, in antibiotic prescribing.
2: I I can't imagine being in being a physician in a situation like that and having people in desperate need and absolutely no evidence uh, to guide me.
0: Right. Exactly, and and th- they're really working to to ensure that their patients have the best chance at survival and recovery. And, and so we definitely um, want to to recognize that that likely had a, an outside influence, particularly in in this study. Um, but it is important, sort of now that we're in the phase of the pandemic that we're in, to to look back and understand now that we can gather more information on you know our bacterial infections occurring in this population. And it does seem to be relatively um, um, low, uh, low occurrence. Um, uh, and, and how can we better um, approach antibiotic stewardship and provide physicians with guidelines for these patients?
2: David, you alluded earlier to the fact that there aren't many antibiotics in the pipeline. I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of antibiotics out there, but as organisms become more resistant, we need new ones. It's an arms race in a sense. Is there a problem with the pipeline?
1: There is a, a problem with the pipeline, and this, this is the convergence of issues that has created this threat of antibiotic resistance. We're running out of the antibiotics that we do have available because they are being overused, um, and their effectiveness is, is diminishing rapidly. At the same time, we used to have a very good, strong antibiotic pipeline where even in the face of those development of the resistance we continue to get new ones coming on to the market and, are, and going, through the, going through clinical trials and getting all that approved. And that, what, that pipeline has now dried up because a lot of pharmaceutical companies have now exited the field of antibiotic research and development. Um, it's, it's part of this market challenge where antibiotics are pretty cheap. Some places are giving away antibiotics for free. You know, because the generic, because because the antibiotic cost is so so low, um, and on top of that, when you think about how antibiotics are used, uh, we in in the in the scenario that we want it to happen, you're taking antibiotics for five seven days, and, and then that's it. You, you cure your infection, and hopefully you never have. Most people never have to take that antibiotic again. It's a very short course when you compare to other drugs. That are um, that that pharmaceutical companies and researchers focus on something like chronic illnesses like diabetes or, or or high blood pressure or cholesterol those are those are medications that you take for many people a lifetime um, so there's there, there's been, there's this shift away from investment into not only developing and researching for new antibiotics um, but also trying to make sure that those, when those antibiotics do successfully clear FDA trials, that a pharmaceutical company could sustain that business of, um, of supplying the antibiotics and maintain that access for the patients
2: who need it. One of the problems is, is that not only is it a short course, but you want to reach for these things sparingly, especially the newest, most powerful ones So in a sense, it seems like if a drug company makes, you know, the newest and best um, antibiotic, it will sit on the shelf until it's really, really, really needed. And so that's a tough environment in which to make a profit.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's that that's the last piece of the, the this market tension that, that's created. You're absolutely right. We we want to make sure, as you said, to sparingly use those and the new ones, these last resort drugs, until they're absolutely needed. And that creates another problem from from the, the you know pharmaceutical companies perspective where they can't um, they can't sus- generate revenue sufficient to sustain the production of their antibiotics and maintain that access. Um, and I think this what, what this really comes down to is trying to find a way to decouple this market challenge that we're facing, where revenue is solely dependent on the volume of, of a drug sold. That model is... It does not work with the stewardship principles we just talked about because we want to make sure we prolong the lifespan of these new antibiotics as much as we can by making sure that they're being used judiciously. And that's going to be the next challenge in terms of how do we find a way to recognize a value of a new antibiotic, not by how much they can be sold for, how much, how much, how much volume they can be sold for, but really reflecting the true public health value of, of, a, of a new antibiotic.
2: So, Rachel, earlier you mentioned policy, and some of this problem goes back to policy. Is Congress or are lawmakers on top of this? Are they doing anything about it?
0: Yeah, so there's certainly been a lot of action across really all of the the policy areas that we've mentioned so far. Uh, At the end of 2020, uh, the the White House published a new um, national action plan to to combat antibiotic resistant bacteria, and that directs um, actions through um, various federal agencies, such as the CDC, um, FDA. Um, etc., in order to ensure that they are supporting efforts both federally as well as at the state level to, to implement stewardship programs, ensure that there's adequate surveillance of bacterial pathogens, um, as well as supporting the development uh, of new antibiotics. Um, and there's also been um, uh, champions within Congress as well that have worked to address this issue, um, primarily um, uh, ensuring adequate funding for, for federal agencies to, to support these efforts, um, as well as through um, uh, legislative efforts to, to spur the development of new antibiotics.
2: People would say the same thing about COVID-19, that we knew it was coming, We didn't know exactly what it was, but we knew a pandemic was coming. And yet, here we are. Um, So I hope that we're not in the same situation when we're caught in an antimicrobial resistant crisis. Thanks to both of you for the work you're doing on this pressing global issue and for taking the time to explain it to me and our listeners.
0: Thank you. Appreciate you having us.
2: Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producers are Alyssa Ambrose and Hyacinth Empanado. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. I'd love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, Please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.